0: Welcome to Pollinators and Power. I'm Terry Oxford and I'm a pollinator advocate in San Francisco, California. Today, I'm talking with Carrie Gillum, author and an investigative journalist for 25 years, both with Reuters and The Guardian. She is also the research director for the most effective, in my opinion, nonprofit research organization out there, exposing how corporate funding of public agricultural universities like UC Davis and University of Florida corrupt the research about agrochemicals. Her research of industrial agriculture practices and the chemicals it requires has taken her throughout rural America. She has spent time with row crop farmers, ranchers, vegetable growers, and orchard operators from the Dakotas to Texas and from California to the Southeast. She has been welcomed inside the high-tech laboratories, greenhouses, and corporate offices of some of the largest U.S. agribusinesses. And she has spent countless hours interviewing key US regulators, academics, lawmakers, and scientists. With years of this behind-the-scenes reporting, Gillum has developed, I'm sorry, Carrie has developed deep insight into the risks and rewards of the modern-day food system. And she hopes to share that knowledge with others who care about the food they eat and what they feed to their families. Carrie has also finished her second book, The Monsanto Papers, Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice. And I found a quote in Barnes & Noble Review that I just wanted to launch into this um, talk with, with Carrie. It said, with enough money and influence, could a company endanger its customers, hide evidence, manipulate regulators, and get away with it all? for decades. So Carrie, I just wanted to ask you about that. Go ahead, talk about your book and talk about the Monsanto Papers and, and what you've written.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Sure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Yeah. So this new book, the Monsanto Papers, is, um, I guess, answers that question for readers. Um Uh, But maybe we shouldn't answer it here. I don't know. Uh, It's really the story of one man who um, comes down with uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma and is told he doesn't have very long to live. And he comes to learn about these, you know, science and these findings that Monsanto's Roundup weed killer can cause this non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And it's a story of how he comes together with this really sort of eclectic group of of lawyers who've never worked on a pesticide case, never sued Monsanto, don't know much even about glyphosate, which is the name of the active ingredient chemical in Roundup, and how they come together to try to take on you know this giant, powerful company, and what they find in terms of you know collusion with regulators and manipulation of science and all of these you know, really secretive uh, techniques and strategies that Monsanto's engaged in for decades. And, um, you know, I watched this all unfold. This is a true story. And I just thought, you know, this is such an amazing story. And the twists and the turns that happen just it looked like a movie as it was unfolding in real life. And I said, I've got I've got to put this down. You know, I've got to get this into a book so people know know what happened. It was it's an amazing story.
0: You know, I just got it. And I just started reading it. And it already is that it's like a page turner, like a whodunit.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what people tell me, which is which is great, which is what I wanted. And and it's all true. That's the thing. I didn't have to, you know, invent or tinker with the, the storyline at all. It was just kind of a crazy story that unfolded.
0: Um, yeah, you know, it's so amazing, because um, what your book speaks about is how how these corporations get away with it you know the and these are the people that are in charge of our food system governing what goes onto our plate and into our children's mouths and they're highly their behavior is highly corrupt in these cases you know and they are willing to hide the dangers and pay off a whole host of institutions to help them you know and i wanted to ask you about that you know one of the responses to your book Uh, Bayer says that independent or Bayer responded that independent health authorities have okayed these products. And I'm curious about that. Do you know who Bayer refers to when they say independent health authorities?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, they're talking about the EPA. They're talking about um, European uh, regulators. They're talking about, you know, all of these different organizations around the world that are designed to protect the public and regulate chemicals like this. Uh, that say, oh, it's safe. We don't see any evidence that it causes cancer. Don't worry about it. And the the thing that you learn in this book and, you know, that I've learned over many years of reporting is that in large part, that's due to a lot of sort of arm twisting and collusion and uh, backroom deals that go on between these companies and these regulatory agencies. And, you know, it's not sort of Supposition—it's um, documented in internal emails and and records and things that we have obtained that show very actively. I mean, one example that we talk about in the book was um, a federal agency that's part of uh, Health and Human Services, called uh, the the acronym is the ATSDR, but it's the Agency for Toxic Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. Um, but they wanted to take a look at glyphosate because they were concerned about the toxicity and they were going to do independent research, this government arm of Health and Human Resources. And Monsanto did not want them to do it. They were very worried about it. And they talk about in their internal emails, how are we going to get this, you know, how are we going to block this? And they went to the EPA, buddies at the EPA, and, and enlisted their friends at the EPA to block this review of glyphosate. And, uh, you know, you see that go on. So, uh, you know, relying on the regulators, unfortunately, um, is not is not the way to protect public health, we found.
0: You know, the name of my podcast is Pollinators and Power because I'm a pollinator advocate. I started out a beekeeper and became aware really early on that the beekeeping industry is really a partner uh, in partnership with the chemical industries. And it took me a whole lot lot of time to figure and deconstruct that. But I found that there's a lot of friends of, of the chemical industry within the beekeeping industry. And um, only an insider would really be able to be aware of that. But what other uh, friends of Bayer have you found throughout the ins- institutions that we rely on for our safety and food safety, especially? Um are there any others other than the beekeeping industry that you are aware of, like in the academic, for instance?
1: Oh my goodness. I mean, and, and again, right. I mean, when we talk about Bayer and Monsanto, Bayer bought Monsanto, you know, in June of 2018. Uh, and it, it, it shouldn't be said that this is exclusively behavior seen only by Monsanto and Bayer, because this is sort of the playbook for the big agrochemical companies. But yes, they fund, to the tune of you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, projects and research and things at universities um, around the world, uh, throughout the United States. Um, they have their money deeply into our academic research programs. Uh, they they fund curriculum and have designed curriculum for elementary schools um, to teach our children. You know, there's one my elementary school son. Uh, brought home a few years ago about how great glyphosate was, you know, a little a little handout that they could learn about glyphosate and corn and GMO corn and how great it was. You know, they are really digging deep. Um they fund uh, front groups, third- party groups that look like they're independent scientific organizations, but actually are secretly under the table getting large sums of money from monsanto and and other players. And then those front groups, uh, go out and push policy and write articles uh, on the internet and in different newspapers and things to say how great these products are and how safe they are. Um, they fund farm groups, you know, uh, national corn growers and soybean growers and uh, wheat growers, and they hold big splashy, you know, uh, events. Uh, they're even, they're even into journalism. Their funding programs bear right now is sponsoring journalism programs and funding journalism organizations um, to teach these journalists how to better cover agriculture and um, the food industry. So, you know, their, their money and their power is, is everywhere. It's, it's really hard to truly find, you know, someone who can be independent and do independent research and speak out independently. And if they do... Then these companies immediately assign their you know their front group henchmen to go out and try to tear that person to shreds, tear down their reputations and uh, isolate them from work and you know it's 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 really powerful and it's really uh, designed to subvert independent science and push corporate science um, and protect corporate profits
0: and media is what we read we need right now, like the only reason i'm going to jump into the next topic, which is the story that you just broke in Mead, Nebraska. But I wanted to ask you, I guess at the beginning of this um, question, like, you just wrote, you just broke a major story in about neonicotinoid, basically a neonic dump in Mead, Nebraska. And I've been following it, everything that's happened ever since. And it's actually fabulous what's happening. But there's not a peep from the major media. And this story, is huge. So can you tell me about the story that you broke, but also then just think about like where is the rest of the media? Yeah, on this story. this breaks my heart. It really does. Where are they? Well,
1: I think uh, there's a there's a lot of different things to say about that, I suppose. So yeah, so this this was a story in Mead, Nebraska, a little t- tiny village. They don't even call themselves a town, um, but a village, a uh, rural farming area of Nebraska. And um, this ethanol plant that's been there for quite some time uh, was using um, had it had a unique strategy uh, for its feedstock for ethanol. A lot of uh, ethanol plants typically bring in sort of starchy, you know, grains like corn or other things to um, turn out their ethanol. And this company thought it would be a really good idea to use uh, seed corn that was coated with pesticides, uh, neonicotinoids, and other dangerous sorts of pesticides that uh, seed companies didn't want needed a place to get rid of and uh, the seed companies would give these seeds to to uh, the plant for free and then it would save them disposal costs and it would say so it all seemed like a great idea except that the waste product that was coming out of this plant was laced with very high levels of these neonicotinoids um, which, again, like if we just want to talk about an example, I mean, it's sort of the EPA gives uh, a benchmark for sort of, you know, what could be considered safe for a neonicotinoid called, and these are insecticides is what they are, neonicotinoids. So a benchmark for one called clothianidin basically is 11 parts per billion. They found, regulators found this toxic pesticide at 427,000 parts per billion. Um
0: Okay, so let me just let me just break in and explain to the audience w- w- the magnitude. So 11 parts per billion means 11 tiny molecules <laughs> of this poison measured into an Olympic sized swimming pool is enough to kill like it's thousands and thousands toxic. and thousands of insects. Yeah, that's 11 parts per bin- billion and they found
1: Four four hundred and twenty-seven thousand parts per billion, right? And and this was just one. This was just one chemical. There were multiple chemicals that they tested. They all of the levels were off the charts. And the and the regulators. So the regulators knew this, and they and they were testing this. And people were getting sick, and animals around the area were getting sick. Um, bees were dying, and and you know, entire hives were dying at the research center at the University of Nebraska, not too far away. Um, you know, butterflies, birds, everything was being affected. Um, but nobody was doing anything about it. Um, and this was going on for a couple of years. And so, uh, you know, I and I, I have to admit, when I started to do this story, you know, it was very difficult. It was very difficult to the regulars wouldn't talk about it. They didn't want to do any interviews. Um, the townspeople all knew something was wrong and they were upset and bothered, but they didn't know for sure. The University of Nebraska people had really been doing a lot of research, but they weren't, you know, they they didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle. Um, But it really was just a horrendous story about what can go tragically wrong when you don't have good oversight of companies um, and you're allowing neonicotinoid insecticide, pesticide, laced, you know, seed products um, out into the environment uh, with very little regulation. So, the good news is, yeah, I did one story, but I did it in The Guardian, and it got a lot of attention. And then all the local media jumped all over that. Nebraska media jumped all over the story and uh, did a lot of brought a lot of attention to it locally and throughout the state. and then state lawmakers and then the regulators, and they ordered the plant closed. And uh, I mean, there's been all sorts of, yeah, attention on it. and And so now something's finally being done,
0: well, yeah, and they're going to be changing the legislation that that can't happen anymore.
1: Right, right, right. So it did. And I had emailed my colleagues of, you know, the Society of Environmental Journalists, and I was so pleased. I said, this is, this is how journalism is supposed to work. You know, when it it takes a village, it takes a group effort. It takes people like you and people like the, you know, women at the University of Nebraska and the, the townspeople, the people of the village who were worried. It takes everybody to just sort of Stand up and and dig down into the, the facts and say this is we need to do something about this right and then and then something has been done so that doesn't always happen <laughs> but this one I think is, is ends up as well as might be expected hopefully well, let's go back
0: to um one of the things that that all of the chemical industries Syngenta BASF uh, Bayer Monsanto uh, Dow I always notice these words when I'm reading their defense in any way. And what it says is they always say, the product is safe if the dose is correct. Okay, so they say, what is that? It's just- If used as directed. If used yeah. as directed, yeah. exactly. And like, that's just a, a a great big, huge hole that you can drive a truck through, <laughs> you know? Because the, the conditions on the ground and I mean on the ground, like in a farm field, never reflect what goes on in a scientific lab. So, you know, in the United States, the way that a scientific lab looks at a product like this is they they look at it through the lens of, of um, how is this product not dangerous? And the way that I flip that around is that in the EU, They look at, their research looks through a lens of how the product could be dangerous for humans and for nature. So our science here in the United States coming out of the public universities on these deadly chemicals is more um, industry. It favors industry more than it favors um, nature and the environment because it's looking just a little bit, a little bit differently creates all the difference in the world so that um, they can say that the dose is safe if used as directed but that research doesn't really delve into all of the other actual things that happen in a farmer's field and one of those things is synergistic um, conditions so if you get like they'll test maybe glyphosate on corn with bees and then um, say it's all good, or they can't, they can't discern if there's a problem or not. Instead of saying, okay, so there's also, the bees are also collecting fungicides, they're also collecting several different um, strengths of neonicotinoids, and then there's all the other stuff that they find. And they don't look at those synergistic effects of, of all these chemicals mixing together in one spot, like a beehive. And um, do you know anything about that? Can you talk about that at all? About why they would only look at things through one lens instead of through the actual lens of what it's like to right. be a bee out
1: there trying to gather up food. Right. Well, and you know, we talk about bees, but you know, humans are exposed in the same way. Humans are not exposed to just one pesticide at, at a time. Uh, we're exposed to quite a lot of them, and. And you're right, this is the practice of our regulatory agencies um, to, and and everybody needs to understand, the the EPA doesn't do independent testing um, of these chemicals. They are, whoever the registrant is, and like for glyphosate, for the weed-killing chemical glyphosate, it was Monsanto. um, The registrant is responsible for bringing scientific research to the agency um, to meet criteria that the agency lays out. And so, yes, a lot of what the agency looks at is research that's brought to them by the companies. Now, they're also supposed to look in the literature for independent science, but they rely very heavily on what the companies tell them. So that's sort of your first problem. The second is that they only look at active ingredients um, independently of surfactants and other things that are mixed into the actual products that people use. So in the incidence of uh, Roundup, They looked at glyphosate um, by itself. They did not look at formulations. They didn't look at glyphosate plus the other ingredients that are in Roundup to judge the toxicity and the carcinogenicity and and all that sort of thing. So you have that very isolated view. And then, as you said, they also don't do any sort of thorough analysis about, okay, well, in the real world, farmers, bees, (laughs) bees. Butterflies, you know, are going to be exposed uh, in, in one field. You know, they might be exposed to, I don't know, a dozen different pesticides.
0: Uh, right? It's over a hundred. In common American agriculture, it's over a hundred,
1: and or a hundred in one field. Again, it it depends on the field. It depends on the farmer. It depends on right the cropping practices. So and And that is seen in the fact that our finished foods, when they come to the grocery store shelves and you buy them and you take them home con- and consume them, the FDA and USDA both do tests on common commonly consumed food products and find you know dozens of different pesticides sometimes. Um, you know, strawberries, I think there are twenty different pesticides uh, in strawberry samples is not uncommon, The government tells us. So, um, and we really don't have thorough independent science that has been focused on that, that has been looking at what is that doing to our human health, what is that doing to our uh, biodiversity, to our bees, to our butterflies, to our pollinators. I mean, it's it's a very, very worrisome trend. And as you said uh, earlier on, the United States has a very different tax than does Europe and other countries. They rely more on a precautionary principle um, they deem that to mean, you know, let's prove it safe before it's out there here in the United States. It's like, well, if you, if you can't prove it to be unsafe, you know, we're going to give it the benefit of the doubt, you know, (laughs) so let's get it out there. And then at some point, if somebody can prove that it's not safe, then maybe we'll take a second look and bring it back. And, um, you know, it's works for industry, uh, and it certainly works for capitalism and, Strong profits for corporations selling these chemicals. Uh, we're not so sure it works very well for public health.
0: Definitely not. Um, it's interesting because you said something in um, earlier. Uh, I, I think another conversation about Lee Johnson that you know he got completely doused with this chemical because the there was a malfunction with the truck and with the tank, and he got completely soaked in the in glyphosate, and he he didn't think that it was as dangerous as it was, he had a certain faith that they wouldn't have a product like that that he could potentially be killed killed by. And I, I just wanna ask about that because I find that all the time that people have a certain amount of very strong faith that this wouldn't happen, that there wouldn't be a product that is killing, that is so powerful that it easily kills so much of biodiversity and nature and soil and birds and amphibians and everything, things that we don't even count until they're gone. But it's interesting that I I I wonder at that that trust that we have in these products and how the hell these corporations did that. <laughs> You know, it's mm-hmm. such a huge accomplishment to make people trust something that is so absolutely deadly and killing so much of our agricultural land, especially in the Midwest. Yeah,
1: yeah. But I mean, that. if you look at the history, if we're talking specifically now about Monsanto and its Roundup products, glyphosate-based Roundup products, the one of the keys to pushing this herbicide to become the most widely used herbicide in the world. Which is its status, uh, is that it has always been marketed and, and sold as being so very safe, so much safer than these other weed killers on the market. You know, we see advertisements for Roundup with people out, you know, in flip flops or bare feet and shorts, you know, spraying in their yards and things like that. And uh, there was sort of a, you know, off the cuff idea around it that, oh, it's safe enough to drink. It's so safe. You could drink it. Um, and of course, none of that was true and we found internal documents where Monsanto warns its own people, Gosh, when you're spraying this stuff, be sure you wear long pants and long sleeves and gloves and wash your hands and you see them talking internally about dermal absorption studies showing how rapidly it can goes into the skin and gets into the bloodstream and um, you know, so so the company had a different message internally and different discussions than what it was telling consumers. And that's what Lee Johnson, you know, found himself in that, in that um, circumstance where when he did get doused with it head to toe and soaked and he, you know, he, he didn't like it. He was worried about it, but he didn't go home immediately and shower. You know, he finished his work and he changed his shirt and finished his you know, work day and and just didn't worry about it. Didn't go to a doctor. Didn't even tell his wife about the accident. Just thought, well, they've told me it's safe. I, nothing to worry about. So, and of course, you know, then he developed this terrible um, disease, mycosis fungoides, non-Hodgkin lymphoma on his skin. Um, it was terrible.
0: I actually met him at um, an event in uh, Berkeley. I was talking with both him and Tyrone Hayes about about exactly this. Um about our trust. And, uh, Tyrone had quite a bit to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> He's an interesting yeah. guy.
1: Tyrone and yeah. I, yeah. yeah, I've talked for years, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we've been in this for years. Tyrone of course was the professor who did the work on atrazine, uh, actually contracted by Syngenta to do research on atrazine. And when the company didn't like what he was finding and they wanted to shut him up and he wouldn't shut up, then they, set out to destroy his reputation.
0: Tell me about that. The Monsanto Fusion Center, like this intelligence center, where they, they
1: just work to create propaganda about the product? Well, you know, we, we don't know a lot. I mean, we have some documents that refer to that and talk about that. We know that Monsanto had people who were designated to essentially do the dirty work of trying to smear and discredit and intimidate and harass uh, journalists or scientists or, you know, anyone who dared sort of point to evidence of harm with their products and to trumpet, you know, as, in as many ways as they could, you know, how safe and wonderful and effective the, the products were Monsanto's products. And, you know, a big part of it was making it look like it didn't come from Monsanto you know, they didn't want people to know that they were behind these smear tactics or that they were behind articles that were appearing in Forbes magazine or USA Today or other places um, about, you know, how great things were. You know, there were articles about me that were um, put out by this group called the American Council on Science and Health and ACSH and, you know, Monsanto and other chemical industry players were funding that group. We have emails where, they're saying, you know, we're defending glyphosate. Please give us more money, Monsanto. And Monsanto's like, Yeah, you're, you know, a great value. You won't get a better value for your dollar, I think it was the language um, that Monsanto said back to them. And and then you see in for my in my situation how that played out, article after article by ACSH about, you know, what a horrible person Carrie Gillum is and you can't trust her and she's a liar and, you know, her book is terrible. And I mean, <laughs> you know, all these all these things. um, But they didn't want anybody to know it was coming from Monsanto. It had to look like it came from an independent group. So it would be more credible.
0: And they always, they always speak with the same type of voice. Like authoritative is one of their keys in their writing. They want to sound really authoritative. And it's funny because these same ones that come out and that spoke against you and U.S. Right to Know are also um, keynote speakers at beekeeping conferences here in the US don't tell me i told you something you didn't know you didn't know that
1: yeah. no i mean i i i know that they are keynote speakers at a lot of agricultural conferences so it's not surprising it would be beekeeping it's just sad it's just sad
0: yeah beekeeping yeah no it's 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 so weird because to see these chemical shills, chemical industry shills speak at beekeeping conferences and being given honorary fellowships at UC Davis. Um, and they speak with all authority that these pesticides, especially neonics do not harm pollinators. It's really, it just shows like the full circle, the whole propaganda has gone all the way through the academic system. And, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty, it infuriates me. And, and I hate to say their names, their individual names, but one of them, he writes for all the Bee Magazines. Mm, can we say it? Who is it? John and Tom, oh, He gosh, writes for them course, all the course. time. He's of always course. writing Bee articles for Bee Culture Magazine and the other one, American Bee Journal. And it's just, unbe- I, I would say unbelievable, but I'm never shocked anymore. It's just... Um, and beekeepers will quote them that pesticides are not a problem for bees. I hear that all the time. Oh, my
1: gosh. Well, and, of course, time.
0: John Entine used to run you know, a PR machine for Monsanto. Is that the genetic literacy project?
1: Yes. Well, and before that, before that even. Yeah. I mean, he has a very long history uh, with Monsanto.
0: Yeah, he's a hitman. He's a hitman.
1: One. One of many.
0: Yeah, one of many. And there are so many. And they, they're um, insidious. And they're inside the food industry in so many different layers, um, and strata.
1: But it's actually brilliant. I mean, it's a brilliant strategy. If you've got money, and you want to control the narrative and control the science and control, you know, it's, it's brilliant. And they've implemented it quite well.
0: Thanks for saying that. I think that too. And it's not that I admire them. You know, you look back in time and see how a long a long con like this was committed, that they said that these agrochemicals are safe for humans and how long this has been going on. It's like, yeah, they've always had the money. And of course they had to implement friends. They had to find friends and players within all the different in. Uh, institutions of our food system, top to bottom. So when I see them in the beekeeping industry, and they're all the ones that have the microphone, they're the ones that have the professors that have written all these books from the most reputable universities in the country and in the world, and they all say the same thing when you get it when you get it down to the to the bottom uh, distilled essence is that pesticides are not the problem for bees and that's all across the world and it's a deflection tactic that the
1: tobacco industry um employed yeah and if you think about i mean the question i always have is if your product really doesn't have any sort of health or environmental hazards associated with it Why would you have to spend all this money and time and effort to create false, you know, propaganda? Like, why would you have to do that? Because if there were no health or environmental problems, there wouldn't be anything to defend against.
0: Right, right, right. That's a smoking gun right there. The fact that they have to do this.
1: Yeah. I mean, if, if there's no problem, independent science would verify that and... And you know,
0: so All right. I admire your work so much. And I just, I have to tell you, Carrie, you're a little bit of a hero to me.
1: <laughs> Sorry. Oh, well, that's very nice of you. I think, I mean, I think we're all here. I mean, anyone who's working for better public and environmental health is a hero. I mean, we need that now. We need to protect our future generations and to protect their health and their reproductive health. You know, it's not, it's, there's, it's, there's cancer, there's disease there's neurodevelopmental defects and problems, infertilities on the rise, testosterone levels are falling in men. Mm. You know, there's, there's so many connections to so many of these chemicals that we're exposed to every single day in our food and our water and our air um, and the loss of pollinators, the health of bees, you know, what did they talk about the canary in the coal mine is sort of the, you know, the bees are that for us right i mean yeah,
0: yeah yeah so well whatever you're doing next it's so important yes and us right to know is the one that i think can do the do the the best work on this topic and um just I'm I'm so glad that they're out there and and yeah definitely give your money to US right to know. <laughs> they can do this. They can do this. Um they've got the right tactic in my opinion. Thank you.
1: Well yeah, and it's not it's not we should say, it's not like it's not lobbying, it's not marching, it's not carrying a sign. What we do is we we spend our time trying to get to the documents and the data and the facts and get them out into the sunlight where where people can do that, where people can take these to policymakers or state, state regulators or federal regulators and you know bring these companies to account um, and make people aware um, so we're doing our best and investigative
0: journalism is how to do that that's like the 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 last bastion of freedom in this country and in actually in in the corporate world is is keeping investigative journalism strong and make and strengthening it and supporting investigative journalists that are working really hard against the propaganda that's unbelievable out there. So yeah, I believe that that's the way to do this. That's what they don't want. They don't want investigative journalists at all. And I think that that's key and telling as to where the power is and where the strength lies is in exposing Well, you
1: recognize that. You do, and I appreciate that and the Society of Environmental Journalists, we talk about that all the time. I mean, so many of those, you know, they're doing the work, but it's hard. It's and you get attacked and you they try to shut you down and Yeah. It's repeat it over and over and over
0: again yeah yeah all right you're awesome thank you so much for talking with me i'm really honored and and just so glad so glad
1: oh you're awesome too thank you for doing <laughs> this i appreciate it all right carrie That's
0: great thank you dear all right i'm terry oxford and this is pollinators and
1: power thanks for listening